Yeah, I think if I had to describe what I learned from Ian, uh, I now call it the TCPS rule. And he taught me that litigation lawyers had to be tough-minded, that what we did often made us unpopular and often put us at odds with our colleagues. But in order to do your job for your clients the way you needed to do it, you had to be very tough-minded. Secondly, he said, you've got to be concise, that too many lawyers just talk too long to listen to themselves speak, and that's not very helpful, and it's incredibly expensive and wasteful. He said, you've got to be persuasive. Ultimately, what a trial lawyer is, is an incredibly skilled and highly paid salesman, and persuasion is really the critical component of advocacy. And then you've got to shut up and sit down. And so to this day, when I'm in court, I'm sitting there watching my opponents and I'm evaluating them on the TCPS school and they get better grades or they get worse grades depending on how close they come to what I see as the ideal. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. Joe Groya is no stranger to controversy. He has spent his career defending unpopular clients, advocating principled positions, and holding strong in the face of a relentless prosecution by the Law Society of Ontario for allegations of incivility in his successful defense of John Felderhoff in the now infamous Briex scandal. Even as a young boy growing up in Toronto, Joe knew with certainty he wanted to practice law. He attended law school at the University of Toronto before being called in 1981. In 1985, he joined the Ontario Securities Commission as Associate General Counsel, handling litigation matters to later become Director of Enforcement. Over time, and under the mentorship of legendary lawyers like Ian Binney, he harnessed his specialization in securities law into forming his own successful firm, Groya & Company. In 2015, and despite the ongoing prosecution he faced by the Law Society, he was elected bencher and now is one of the many lawyers in the province of Ontario who contribute to the regulation of the profession. He has been ranked as one of Canada's 500 leading lawyers since the year 2000. Above all, Joe's sense of right and wrong and his willingness to fight for injustice is truly remarkable and an inspiration to many lawyers and law students wishing to follow in his footsteps. Join us as we listen to Joe discuss advocacy, integrity, courage, and how to make fine wine on this episode of Of Counsel. So I'm here with um, Joe Groya. This uh, is something that I've been particularly looking forward to as a defense counsel. Um, a lot of the issues that have arisen as of late uh, with Mr. Groya's case have been particularly personal and uh, for me. And I'm, I'm very eager to talk to you today about some of those issues. But before we get into them, I want to know how your career in law started. What motivated you to not only commence law, but continue um, law in the way that you have? 
Thanks for the invitation, Sean. And I guess I'm one of those people who considers himself to be very fortunate because my whole life, since I was 10 years old, I wanted to be a lawyer. And I often wondered during high school and law, uh, undergrad what I would do if I didn't get into law school. But in grade three, I took some Saturday morning classes, and one of the classes I took was a course on law, and I was very interested in it. So I went to the library, and the only book I could find about a lawyer was uh, Irving Stone's biography of Clarence Darrow. And I read that, and I realized pretty quickly that law was the career that I wanted to pursue, and everything after that was really intended to get me into law school, and if I could pass there, then I would try and find a job and see what it was like to be a real lawyer practicing in Toronto. We often ask our guests, you know, is there ever a crossroads in life where you think it could have ended in another way? But it seems like um, by that uh, statement, it all the crossroads were just a detour back to where you wanted to be. Yeah, I had really two incredibly fortunate things happen to me in my career, and I'm, I'm absolutely convinced if Uh, Firstly, I hadn't been Bob Sharp's research assistant in second year law school, and he steered me towards a firm called McTaggart Potts, where I met Ian Binney and George Strathy and Arthur Stone. I would have probably ended up at a big firm, and I'd be a very different kind of lawyer. And then in 1985, I went to Harvard Law School for some summer classes, and I met Hermano Pescudo, who was the director of the Securities Commission, and We went out and had a long and somewhat boozy lunch, and he offered me a job. And I said, when I get back and we're both sober, if you offer me the job again, I'll probably take it. So I went from being a sort of very junior litigation lawyer at McMillan Bench to being ultimately the head of enforcement at the Securities Commission. And I remember it was like like it was yesterday. I went into the office on my first day, and there was an empty crummy government office with a desk that had nothing on it but one file folder and a note from Armano saying, I'd like you to handle this. And I opened it up and there was a letter from John J. Robinette to the Securities Commission saying, when can we meet to talk about resolving this case? So I picked it up, went down the hall and I said to Armano, now come on, this is a sick joke, right? And he said, no, no, I need you to go and deal with that because it needs to get resolved, and it's been lying fallow for too long. So, what, what year was this? It's 1985. And so here I was, a fourth-year lawyer, and I went down to the McCarthy's office, and Mr. Robinette came out to get me, and he called me Mr. Groya. And I remember the deal because it <clears throat> wasn't a very good deal for the commission, but I think I was in such awe uh, just being in Mr. Robinette's office, I would have given him the shirt off my back if he'd <laughs> asked for that too. So, When you're looking back to that now, right? I mean, obviously you appreciate how, um, I guess you could say the magnitude of these legal titans at the time, but looking back, did you realize how much they were forming you into the litigator that you are today? You know, I grew up at Bloor and Lansdowne, and I went to public schools in Toronto, and I had very limited experience with lawyers. So when I started the article at McTaggart Potts, I remember I had a couple of bad polyester suits that I'd bought on sale at Eaton's. So I was pretty much an open book, and, you know, I was blessed because most of whatever good instincts I have about practicing, I learned from Ian. 
And George, George Strathy was his junior in those days. So I did a lot of work with George because I was doing a lot of work with Ian. And so I still to this day will hear myself saying things or doing things that really I learned watching Ian perform at an incredibly high level of practice. Um, and then as I got into practice, you know, I was lucky enough to have lots of opportunity to work with lots of good lawyers. Stan Fisher was running the litigation department at McMillan Bench, and I got to work with him. And the other good thing is that in those days, because the practice was different, there was enough time for senior lawyers to spend time with guys like me, trying to explain to me how to do things and, more importantly, how not to do things. So I, I can say without any doubt that those kinds of experiences, watching, learning, discussing, being criticized on a regular basis, those were the things that really took me from being just a kid who didn't know anything to being a young lawyer who started to do cases at the Securities Commission way above his skill level. When uh, you know, you're, you're around these people, you, you spoke sort of about the generalities of the, the lessons um, that were passed on. And asking you more specifically, because I remember as a young lawyer, I may have even been an articling student at the time, uh, my, uh, uh, my principal was Jack Minkowski. And one thing that he said um, over and over again was footprints in, footprints out. Now, at the time, he was talking about file management, but there was a deeper lesson there about litigation, and that is when a person is going to um, do something, there's always a mark of that going in and going out. And so looking at it from an investigatory point of view has been very valuable later on in my career and trying to figure out cross-examinations and stuff. So I use that as an example because I wonder if there are specific lessons that have resonated with you that you now pass on or use day-to-day in your career as a securities litigator. Yeah, I think if I had to describe what I learned from Ian, uh, I now call it the TCPS rule. And he taught me that litigation lawyers had to be tough-minded. What we did often made us unpopular and often put us at odds with our colleagues. But in order to do your job for your clients the way you needed to do it, you had to be very tough-minded. Secondly, he said, you've got to be concise, that too many lawyers just talk too long to listen to themselves speak, and that's not very helpful, and it's incredibly expensive and wasteful. He said, you've got to be persuasive. Ultimately, what a trial lawyer is, is an incredibly skilled and highly paid salesman, and persuasion is really the critical component of advocacy. And then you've got to shut up and sit down. And so to this day, when I'm in court, I'm sitting there watching my opponents and I'm evaluating them on the TCPS school and they get better grades or they get worse grades, depending on how close they come to what I see as the ideal. Um, You know, and tough-mindedness in part, I know we're going to talk about the civility issue later, but I've always found that there's a tension between being tough-minded and being civil And Ian, I remember like it was yesterday, we were having lunch in Hamilton and we were talking about a case. And he said, Joe, you know, you always have to remember that the most important person in the world to your client is you. And so 
he said that unlike lots of lawyers, he didn't go to lunch with them during hearings or cases. He spent time with his client. And, you know, he said, you've got to be polite, but you don't have to be friendly. And you don't certainly want your client to think you like your opponent's lawyer better than you like your client. And that's a lesson that stuck with me. And to this day, when I'm doing a case, I will be polite, but, you know, I won't certainly be chummy. And sometimes even afterwards, I'll have to phone the lawyer on the other side just because I know them and I like them and we're professional colleagues. But I think sometimes my trying to represent my client comes across as being uncivil when really what it's intended to do is to show my client that I really care more about them than I do about somebody on the other side of the courtroom. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very important because um, it's often difficult as a lawyer to compartmentalize those different types of personalities and and shifting that to ensure that your client uh, doesn't feel as though uh, they somehow are being compromised for the sake of a another relationship. Um, I'm curious, Joe, you know, I, uh, do litigation myself, but, um, I, I'm not entirely sure what a securities litigator does. So can you just tell us in general terms, what is a day-to-day like for you? Sure. I mean, I, I do three kinds of cases really, for the most part. I do a lot of white collar criminal defense involving criminal code or provincial Securities Commission prosecutions. So that's insider trading, market manipulation, misleading disclosure. You know, anytime a board member gets into trouble with a regulator or the enforcement agencies, I will defend them. I don't do any prosecution work because I don't think you can credibly represent an accused person and at the same time also be representing the Securities Commission in an unrelated matter. Secondly, I will sue banks and brokerage houses on behalf of injured investors. So I don't have an institutional practice. Most of my clients are men and women who've been cheated by their stockbroker or their financial advisor. And I will sue any major financial institution because, again, my experience is the white shoe firms are reluctant to do that for conflict reasons. The only exception to that is Scotia, because they're my banker, and I sort of think it's not a good idea to sue the person (laughs) who has your line of credit. So Mm -hmm. I leave them off the list, but everybody else is fair game. And, And then lastly, I do general commercial litigation. So disputes between public companies over joint venture agreements. I have a pretty active mining litigation practice where because I know quite a bit about the mining business. So, you know, our firm will represent usually people in disputes with major corporations. And so we don't do any criminal outside of securities criminal. We don't do any family, any real estate, all the wrongful dismissal stuff we tend to stay away from unless it's a brokerage house. And uh, I found that what I have as an advantage is I have a pretty good knowledge of the way the markets work and the people in the markets. And so I'm comfortable moving back and forth between civil and criminal as long as it stays with securities. I, I would be, a, I think, an embarrassment to the profession if I tried to do a drunk driving case. And so I stay away from those. May I ask you, the um, 
your your practice um, is quite specialized, if not hyper specialized, in securities law. And one of the concerns that uh, is often seen with younger lawyers is a uh, fear, perhaps, to drill down too tightly into a, an area of practice that they like. But it seems as though this has served you very well from an early point in your career. Um, what advice would you give to young lawyers who are cautious of, of becoming too specific in what they want to practice um, moving forward into their careers? Yeah, I, I think I see the development of young lawyers in three stages. So I think very early in your legal career, even at law school, you need to decide, do you want to be a barrister or do you want to be a solicitor? And I think you've got to make that decision because the legal skills and the forensic skills you want to develop are quite different, whether you're going to be in a courtroom or not. And and I say to those who want to be solicitors, you know, I, I, I wish you have a happy career, but God, it's going to be boring. <laughs> so once you've made that decision, then I think the second stage is got to happen within a couple of years of practice. And I think you've got to then decide, you know, do I want to be, and I'll just talk about litigation. Do I want to be a family lawyer? Do I want to be a criminal lawyer? Do I want to be a personal injury lawyer? Or do I want to be a more general commercial civil litigator? Um, those three subspecialties really require a fairly high degree of sophistication. And, you know, the people who do personal injury, I think, have a skill set that I certainly don't have and a knowledge base that I don't have. There is still a category for general litigators, and there are lots of people doing that. But I think relatively early in your career, you got to pick one of those subspecialties because the knowledge base you need to practice proficiently now is very high and the you know the stories we hear about the Charlie Dubbins and the uh, the lawyers who went from a criminal case to a civil case to a family case in a week I just think those days are over certainly in Toronto and to some extent even in the county towns outside of Toronto and then the last stage, of course, is now that you're in an area, what you're really doing is developing your skill set. And you're trying to become not only proficient, but also reasonably well-known so you can generate business and, and establish a reputation as really a leader in that area. So to a young lawyer, I say, you know, make the decision early on as to whether you want to be a litigator or not. And then spend four or five or six years trying to figure out what kind of litigator and then devote the rest of your career to really building the skill set you need to be the best in that area that you can be. In um, in 2000, um, that type of specialization and, as you say, becoming a leader in your field um, drew you to a case of uh, John Felderhoff and who at trial um, it was alleged to he is alleged to have engaged in insider trading relating to the now defunct and infamous gold company Briex. The case didn't end until 2007, where he was found not guilty in a judge alone trial. This verdict uh, certainly came as a shock to many and was highly controversial at the time. 
And for you as his counsel, it was uh, clearly uh, a monumental accomplishment. Of course, um, the case didn't end there. And in 2009, the Law Society launched an investigation into your conduct at the trial with respect to allegations of incivility. Um, ultimately, um, they found that you should be suspended from your license to practice law for two months. Um, you're ordered to pay costs in the amount of $247,000. And following this, a series of appeals continued to its termination point at the Supreme Court of Canada this fall. And now we await uh, that decision, which is probably the most closely watched decision for lawyers in the entire country, uh, if not ever. Um, it's the type of case that Every lawyer has an interest, and I wish I could spend an entire season of this podcast discussing this case and what it means for the profession and zealous advocacy, but um, if it was possible to reduce it all to one major lesson um, other lawyers could take from your experience, what would you see it to be? Well, Briex has become a case that will always be probably the most important case of my professional life. And I say that on a personal level, on a professional level. It's a case that has had incredible heartache and exhilaration. And it's a case that has so many complications to it. But I think the one lesson for me is that I mean, that was a case that really challenged me to not only stand up against the forces of the government and to represent a client who very early on, I was convinced, had not violated the Securities Act. And in fact, one of the first things I did when I was asked to represent John was I sent him for a lie detector test. And he went to see uh, the best polygrapher in North America and he passed with flying colors. So I never had any doubt then or since that he was involved in the fraud at Briex. But what it challenged was, you know, my ability to represent a client who I believed was innocent, who was being subjected, I thought, to unfair treatment by the regulator, who ran out of money in the middle of the trial and couldn't afford to pay us. And so we finished that case with about $4 million in legal fees that will never get paid. Um, and it challenged me to do as best I could, the highest quality legal work I could, when I was also trying to run a small firm and, and pay the rent. So when the case ended and we won, and I remember that moment so vividly, I was frankly in a state of shock. And so the Law Society struggle, which actually started in 2002 when they wrote me a letter telling me I was under investigation and we'll finish in the Supreme Court in 2018. The Lost Society case was so problematic in, in so many different ways because I think it took a lot of the victory that John had so justly deserved. And it made, it made it look like he only won the case because he had a trial lawyer who was an animal and who was treating the prosecutor in this outrageous fashion. So it sullied John's acquittal, which deserved to be clear and unambiguous. And it, and for me, it really said, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. And for a law society regulator to charge me with incivility on a trial where they hadn't bothered to order and read the transcripts before I got charged, so they had no idea what was going on other than what they'd read about in the newspapers, 
And then to accuse me of uh, engaging in an abusive process by trying to defend myself. So I actually got convicted on the basis that uh, I had already been convicted by the Court of Appeal for my conduct as counsel. Um, it raised so many issues from a regulatory standpoint that I still to this day, when I try and teach students about the Briex case, struggle to condense it into one, one thoughtful paragraph. So I guess, Sean, I would have to say that, you know, for me, Briex will always be a, a high water point in my career because when I look back on it, I said, we did incredibly good work. We did incredibly good service to the public because we did it for free. And the Law Society, I think, has demonstrated a, a real problematic side to their regulatory nature by saying to the, saying to the world at large that the only person who will be convicted in the Briex case is the defense lawyer who successfully defended his client. And that's just the absolutely worst possible message we could be sending to any Canadian who ever needs to hire a lawyer. I have to ask because I don't think there are many lawyers who would have persisted to continue the fight as you have. And I think it speaks volumes about your character and, and fighting for what you feel is right and the integrity of um, the justice system, your client, yourself. Um, how is it that you're able to maintain this willingness to fight all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada over the course of almost two decades? Well, that's a, a hard question to, to answer. But, you know, I think I grew up in a, in a neighborhood where very early on you got a pretty strong sense of what was right and wrong, and you had to live by those values. And as I started to practice law, I became quite convinced as a regulator that we needed to deal with a lot of injustices in this world and, and even in the capital markets. You know, I remember one of my early cases at the Securities Commission. We went after some major Bay Street directors, people who were not accustomed to finding a regulator actually accusing them of wrongdoing. And I remember a lawyer from a white shoe firm saying to me, you know, don't you know who these people are? And I said, yeah, they're the people who broke the law in order to get a gain that they thought they deserved. And it was not a popular way of approaching the case. And you may or may not know that when I tried to leave the Securities Commission after I got married in 1989, I was blacklisted by the major firms in Toronto. And I couldn't get a job until Heenan Blakey opened up their Toronto office and I was lucky enough to get hired by them to start a litigation department. So I've always had this real sense of right or wrong and a sense of values that makes me say that if I see an injustice and I can do something about it, then I'm going to try my best. You know, Stanley Beck, the former chairman of the Securities Commission, who's a very dear friend, said, Joe, one of the great things about watching you grow up was you went from the guy who had to jump into every fight to being the guy who only jumped into some of them. And, you know, I think he's probably right. So the Law Society fight has been enormously stressful and expensive, and it's gone on for 16 years. And 
win or lose in the Supreme Court, you know, I'll just be glad to have it over. Mm, I'm sure. If your appeal is not successful, you know, and we don't have a um, a favorable, uh, from my point of view anyway, definition of, of what it means um, to be a zealous advocate in court, do you fear that this concept of civility um, may be placed on too high of a pedestal when contrasted with other objectives that lawyers must advocate for on behalf of their clients? I'm actually not that worried about it, and I'll tell you why. Because I think that the controversy that surrounded my case and the fact that you and other people have spoken out in my favor has really caused the law society to question how wise it was to, to do what they've done in, to me. And my sense as a bencher is that the law society is trying to get better judgment when it comes to the cases it takes and the cases it doesn't take. And so I think it's going to really be a very extreme case in the future that will be necessary before the law society is going to prosecute somebody else for courtroom conduct. Now, of course, if I win, then there'll be a new boundary set. And I hope the Supreme Court will ring fence courtrooms from the regulation of law societies. But, you know, they've gotten such harsh criticism and it's been such an enormous waste of money. You know, we've probably spent, between what I've spent and what the Law Society spent and what the legal system has spent, we've probably put $5 million into this case. And here we are with a shortage of articling jobs and a shortage of jobs for new lawyers. I mean, I can think of a lot of better ways to have spent that money than prosecuting uh, somebody for their alleged incivility when, importantly, I was never criticized by the trial judge. And in fact, the trial judge was criticizing the prosecutors who, of course, escaped any regulatory response. Mm -hmm. Now, as you say, it's it's certainly no secret um, that I've been a very vocal defender of your position and, and the concern it causes me as a defense lawyer, particularly um, one with, um, I think, fair to say, strong civil libertarian leaning. And elsewhere, I've said, um, civility is a rather nebulous concept. It's one that's easily misaligned with improper dissent or disruption, even if that um, concordance is derivative from the pursuit of justice. And we try our best as advocates to rise above, to be civil, but at times the issue is so controversial or opposed that the mere objection to it can be characterized as uncivil itself. Now, in when I mentioned that, in particular, I was alluding to things that I see as a defense counsel as facing potential prosecution because, um, for example, a complainant on a sexual assault describes my conduct during the trial as uncivil um, because of a firm but necessary cross-examination, which may be entirely proper in law. Or another analogy might be lawyers who might advocate strongly against a popular position that, that may conflict with the majority of law society at the time, which, use another example, maybe uh, Trinity Western. And uh, the, the question is, you know, I hear what you're saying with um, the law society may second guessing themselves before they engage a prosecution, but do they not still have an obligation to pursue complaints? Because if civility becomes a standard and a complainant of a sexual assault, for example, doesn't like the way or the discomfort that court inherently causes. Is that not a concern, or am I overstating this? 
No, no, it's a concern. And what we argued in the Supreme Court, it's, it's interesting you would use that example because I wanted Earl Cherniak to ask the Supreme Court, parenthetically, what their view would be if the Law Society was to pass a rule saying that going forward, defense lawyers were not allowed to cross-examine complainants in sexual assault cases. And would the court hesitate in those circumstances to say that's not going to stand up? And and for me, the the tension comes from the fact that a trial setting involves a very careful balancing of the rights of various parties. First and foremost are the rights of the accused. And, and as a bencher, I can tell you that any attempt by the law society to interfere with the way defense lawyers do their job, as, as required by the rules of the criminal court and as directed by the trial judge, any attempt to say, well, we're going to impose a different standard, I'm going to argue against as long and as hard as I possibly can. And for me, the, the real danger, I think, with the civility case is it ignores the reality of the trial process. I mean, Sean, you do a lot of trial work. I do a lot of trial work. We pay very close attention to the body language and the words of the judge, and we do our very best to try, within those boundaries, get the best result we can for a client. So for a regulator, 15 years after the fact, without even having read the transcripts, just reading newspaper stories and factums, to come along and say, well, we're going to interfere with that and we're going to impose our own standards, not only is bad for the lawyer who finds herself charged, but it's also terrible for the client who now worries that their client, their lawyer is looking over their shoulder to see if there's a law society investigator sitting in the room sent looking at how she does her job. Um, so I do think it's an issue that is there. I think it's one that a number of ventures, including me, are, are alive to. And I can tell you that there's certainly enough vocal resistance to any more cases like mine that you know, it's going to require an extreme example. And I, I do think, you know, if a judge cites a defense lawyer for contempt, you know, there's a famous case where a criminal lawyer challenged a witness to step outside and have a fight. Uh, that kind of extreme conduct where it's referred to, referred by the judge or, or so outrageous is always going to have some kind of law society response. The problem with my case was, I was making submissions for a Section 24-1 remedy. I was using the language of, of Cura and the other cases that are necessary in order to allege prosecutorial misconduct. I wasn't using the F word. I didn't challenge anybody to a fight. And yet the Law Society basically said, well, we don't like the way you did it, so we're taking away your license for first two months and then on appeal one month. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk to you about um, your election as a bencher. In 2015, you were elected um, as a bencher and quite resoundedly at that. A very, very competitive uh, election. I think upwards of almost 50 people ran in the Toronto area. Um, so before we get into that election itself, can you just explain in very brief terms what is the role of a bencher and how is one elected and its importance? A bencher is like a board of directors member for the Law Society. The Law Society is a $110 million a year business, and benchers operate like the board. 
But it's a little unusual because it's such a large group of people. I mean, we have 90 people who are eligible to come to the board meetings, and we end up with about 60 usually there. And so the Supreme Court has said that it's like a board, but it's also like a municipal council. So what we do is give overall strategic direction to the staff of the Law Society, and we set priorities and we make decisions about how the Law Society should engage in its overall objective, which is to act in the public interest to regulate the profession. But, you know, the Law Society is in the insurance business, it's in the catering business, it's in the real estate business, it does a whole bunch of other things. And certainly I've expressed the concern that we're moving away from our core mandate, which is to make sure lawyers are competent and honest, and we're doing all these other things. And over time, if I stay on as a bencher, I really want us to start asking ourselves if we should be doing less catering and less real estate and more focus on integrity and competence. Um, so it's a challenging job. It involves a lot of time. And it's also a very rewarding job because you have an opportunity to try and make a difference in how the profession really moves forward. I've become, however, a bit like uh, Winston Churchill. I feel like I'm in the wilderness because I'm often opposing things that they're trying to do, and I speak up vocally, and uh, I find myself as the great dissenter on a number of the things that have come forward lately. Do you think that um, your um, willingness to dissent has in part um, got you to the position you are? Because, for, you know, when, when you were elected, this was right in the thick of what was happening with your case. And I wonder if you saw your election, again, quite resoundedly at that, um, as a backlash from clearly many lawyers in the province who disagreed with your prosecution. Did you get that sentiment? Well, I ran because I had been losing at every step of the Law Society process, and I was tired of always being uh, you know, criticized by benchers for doing what I thought was a, a great service to Mr. Felderhoff. So deciding to run for me was an extremely difficult decision because I was essentially asking the profession to vote on my case. And if I had lost, I think it would have been very hard on my soul because it would have said that the legal profession doesn't agree with this fight that I'm waging at great expense to myself and my family. So when I won, I was quite relieved because not only was I now going to have a chance to do something inside the Law Society, which they certainly weren't expecting, but it said to me that I had a lot of support from the profession at large. So as a bencher, what I've tried to do is to represent what I see as the underrepresented mainstream of the profession. When I look at the composition of the, of the law society, there are very real benchers who have a representation that I think is not consistent with what I see as the mainstream of the profession. So I find myself talking to people who have a perspective, and it's certainly a perspective that deserves to be represented. But when we talk, for example, about the statement of principles, I just could not understand why 
my colleagues were so determined to put forward something that I see as extremely damaging to the profession. So I, I do want to talk to you about that. So I think this is a good time to get into it. How did the statement of principles uh, come about? Yeah. So we had set up before I got there. The Law Society had set up a, a working group to look at diversity initiatives, and they had worked away in very difficult circumstances for a number of years and there was some very real political controversy within the working group and so coming down to the wire when they needed to make their report in the last year I think as a compromise the statement of principles was added to the report um, as a way of trying to bridge the gap between the groups on the committee when I did a study as I did for purposes of a motion that I brought it became clear to me that all of the work that had been done and all the advice that the group had been given had told them that these kinds of compelled requirements were a bad idea. They weren't effective and they would alienate a large part of the profession. But they brought it forward anyways. We tried when the recommendations came to convocation, we tried to vote on them separately and that was rejected. And so our choice was all or nothing. And although I had real reservations about the statement of principles, I decided in the first go round that the better thing to do was to go with everything rather than nothing. Um, what I then realized, though, is as the recommendations started to roll out and lawyers started to think about them, the statement of principles was becoming extremely problematic for a lot of people practicing. So in the fall, I brought a motion to amend the recommendations. I didn't think I would have enough votes to eliminate it altogether. So I brought a motion where any lawyer who had a conscientious objection to signing the statement would be excused from doing so. And what I said in December when, when the motion was argued was, if you support the statement of principle, then go ahead and sign it. If you're apathetic about it and it doesn't trouble you, then go ahead and sign it, even though I'm not sure I like that. But if for reasons of faith or conscience, you're opposed as I am to forcing people to espouse a certain set of beliefs, then you should be excused from doing so. Now, what the Law Society did that I was upset about was they issued what they called a guide to the statement of principles. And the guide essentially says that although it's called a statement of principles, it's not a statement of principles. And although it requires you to promote diversity, it doesn't require you to do anything. And we're not going to make you disclose your statement of principles. And we're not going to compel you to show it to us. Um, and on that basis, nobody should have a problem with this. Well, for me, that's regulation at its worst. We had a problem, it was identified. Rather than fixing the problem, we try and explain it out of existence. Um, so the motion was argued and it was lost about two to one. And I don't think that's going to be the end of the, of the debate. A lawsuit has been started by a professor in Thunder Bay. There's a new website down in London called Stop Sop that people are signing on to. Um, and I think a large number of lawyers already have indicated they're not going to sign the statement of principles. Uh, for me, the issue was very simple. You know, here we are trying to promote diversity, and in order to do that, we're offending 
all kinds of men and women of conscience and faith for no good reason. And forcing somebody to sign something they don't believe in is a bad idea. Offending people who otherwise would be supporting you is a bad idea. And nobody, I asked repeatedly, nobody could give me a single reason why they thought this would actually get us anywhere close to where we wanted to, to be. So it's a very sad day, I think, for the law society. In, re- in reading the statement of principles, and you know, I think maybe I'll just read it out so everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. Recommendation 3 sub 1 provides as follows. The Law Society will require every licensee to adopt and to abide by a statement of principles acknowledging their obligation to promote equality, diversity, and inclusion generally and in their behavior towards colleagues, employees, clients, and the public. And um, obviously, one of the, the really controversial, if not the controversial term, was the obligation to promote. And uh, a lot of people took that as a, a positive duty rather than an act of acceptance to essentially uh, understand what human rights law is about and its purpose and things like that. Um, and I... I um, You've gone over a lot of very important points in there, but one thing that's always been a concern to me in hearing this, and to be clear, I mean, the, the from my point of view, and I, um, I, I assume you agree with the general sentiment that, you know, diversity in the profession is a great thing, um, but there are a lot of um, what what the question that arises from this is: Does the law society have the power to? suggest to members that they must do something, that they must um, believe in something or an obligation to do something outside of what they're strictly required to as lawyers. And one concern I have is that um, right now, for many members, this is perfectly fine. But if that precedent is set of compelled speech or obligations, um, do you see a concern that a statement of principles can shift into something like an obligation to promote uh, patriotism or loyalty or other things that are far more um, typically aligned with a stronger right wing. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the problem. Once you start down a road of requiring lawyers to express views that they may not believe in themselves, then you've crossed the line and you're into an area of compelled speech and you're into an area of compelled beliefs. And I think those violate the charter requirements. And I think they go far beyond the proper role of the law society. You know, I made it very clear. I have a zero tolerance policy and a zero tolerance attitude towards any kind of racist conduct. And there are very clear law society rules and we will not tolerate someone who acts in a racist manner. And I don't think there's any debate about that. And I'd like to see the Law Society get a lot more aggressive in making sure that young men and women know there are resources available if they've been discriminated against. But once you move into the area of acknowledging a belief to promote, now I think you're into an area where the Law Society not only has no jurisdiction, but I think it's unhelpful to the profession for them to be going in that direction. Now, a number of lawyers have said to me they don't want to get into a fight with the Law Society, so they're not going to check no, they're going to have a statement of beliefs. And their statement of beliefs essentially will say something like, I hate the Law Society, I obey the law, and this is my statement of principles. Um, you know, there's 
there's been quite a debate, but I'm satisfied. There is no current obligation to promote diversity that exists. So for us to acknowledge that obligation to promote, I think is simply incorrect. And I think that trying to say that promote does not involve active conduct, which is what the guide claims to do, I think that's incorrect. And so this whole area is problematic. You know, one of the great ironies, Sean, is that uh, before I became a bencher, the Law Society refused to acknowledge Trinity Western as a law school because it required their students to sign a statement of principles that the Law Society said, you know, that's a really bad idea. And now the Law Society is saying, well, you know, it depends on the statement of principles. We have the right to make you sign ours, but if you choose to sign Trinity Western's, we're not going to allow you to be a lawyer in Ontario without going through extra hoops. Um, that's the issue before the Supreme Court, and we'll see how that turns out. But I, I just believe, as a simple matter, we, we need to stay away from this whole area because you're right. Today, it's diversity and inclusion. Tomorrow, you know, will we have to sign a statement of principles that affects the way we represent accused in sexual assault cases and, you know, honor, promise to honor and respect victims uh, and to take them at their word kind of thing. It's just the whole area is fraught with peril, and I wish we hadn't got started down this road. You take um, a lot of positions that I think it's fair to say require uh, a lot of courage, and even you, you know, you just mentioned where a lot of lawyers will say, I don't want to engage the law society. Um, I'd rather just do my own private thing and not to make waves for my own personal practice or, or well-being. And I wonder, uh, how do you perceive the importance of uh, having courage as a lawyer, um, particularly as a litigator? Is this a necessary trait to success? It's probably, if not the most important, certainly in the top two or three characteristics of a litigation lawyer, especially a criminal defense lawyer. I mean, we, when, when I do criminal defense work, when I represented John Felderhoff, the National Post ran a front page story saying, I was now a pariah on Bay Street because I chose to defend him. And he was a pariah, and you know his career was ruined simply once the allegations about the company broke. So you can't do the kind of work we need to do in the criminal sphere without having an enormous amount of of courage. And frankly, I think in part that that courage gets supported by our colleagues at the defense bar. So anyone who wants to do litigation work. It's not a popularity contest. You know, I, I teach young lawyers that there'll be many cases where a judge is not happy with you. They're not happy with your submissions and they're making it very clear they're not happy with you. But your job is to stand there and create a record because if you sit down too soon and the case goes on appeal and, you know, the court of appeal says, well, Mr. Gory, you didn't make that argument in front of the trial judge. It's not a good response to say, yeah, but he was being so miserable to me, I just decided to sit down. So I've, I've had judges say, you know, if you don't sit down, Mr. Groya, I'm going to hold you in contempt. And my response has to be, well, Your Honor, you know, you have a job to do and I have a job to do. And if you want to hold me in contempt, obviously I'll have to deal with it. But I'm here to represent 
my client and and I'm going to say what I need to say and you're going to have to listen. As a as a young student, I had a case in the old city hall. I was I did a lot of legal aid work and I was defending someone on a drunk driving case before Bob Dnieper, who I hope you're old enough to remember, but he was a a famous criminal trial judge and an incredibly difficult person, but but very smart. So I'm making these submissions on how to keep the breathalyzer results out. And, and he turns around in his chair, swings it right around, and I'm looking at the back of his chair. And this is not an experience that I'm accustomed to, so I'm trying to figure out, well, what do I do about this? And I say, well, I'm going to put it on the record. And I turn to the court <laughs> reporter and I say, I'd like the record to show that his honor has turned his back on me and, and uh, appears to be not listening to my submissions. And without turning back around, <laughs> the Justice Dnieper says, I'd like the record to show that I am listening to your submissions, Mr. Groy. I'm just not looking at you. <laughs> so, you know, that that requires a certain amount of courage. And, you know, I think the, the simple reality is courage is an absolutely essential part of what we need to have in order to do our jobs properly. You know, just as you're telling that story and and even mentioning that you have a duty to protect the record when this gets to appeal, as it seemed to be going that way, um, there's an implicit uh, recognition in that that ultimately this is about the rule of law. Ultimately, right will prevail, as the law society's uh, very uh, motto says. And uh, I think what was so uh, concerning about your case is that um, structure that the the bulwarks that we I, I would think gain our courage from um, it kind of crumbles out underneath a defense lawyer if you feel as though you can't advocate for yourself advocate for your client rather as, as zealously as possible and I think that is what is causing particular concern among defense lawyers to say that you know, even though the heavens may fall, we can still continue to fight because uh, the law has our back. Even the law society, to a certain degree, we'd like to think has our back in knowing that what we have to argue is very distasteful, distasteful but um, we have to do what we have to do. And um, I wonder, do you do you ever get that sense within uh, the venture community? At least some people recognize that lawyers rely on them to um, fight for us as well. No, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I was incredibly disappointed about was you know, I had eight benchers, three at the hearing and five on the appeal, all say things about me and my conduct that I think damage the way trial lawyers look at their ability to do their job. But I was really expecting that when the case got into the divisional court and the court of appeal that judges would understand the importance of the work that defense lawyers do and would really deal with the problem. Now, there I'm losing five to one. Um, but as Earl Cherniak likes to say, you know, he who wins last wins. So the issue that we've asked the Supreme Court to really wrestle with is this very real tension between what defense lawyers have to do for their clients and the the pressure that the Law Society decision in my case will put them under. I mean, the, the sad reality is that if you're defending a client 
and you're doing it to the best of your ability, and you're not being criticized by a judge, and you're not asking a witness to step outside and have a fight, which will get you criticized for sure. The notion that the Law Society will come along many years after the fact and say, well, you know, Mr. Groya, you shouldn't be using that language. One of the things that I was always dumbstruck by, Sean, was that in the hearing at the Law Society, I was criticized by the prosecutor for using words that were quotes from Stinchcomb and later quotes from Curra. So I've always asked myself, how can it be professional misconduct to use the very same language that Justice Sapinka used in Stinchcomb about separating the wheat from the chaff? Or in dissent, Leroux Dubay talked about a, a, a lynch mob searching for a tree, which was another expression I used. How can that possibly be professional misconduct? I, when I teach my class on civility, almost always... A student will come up to me and say, well, Mr. Gloria, where do we get to the part where you use the F word or, you know, you, you got into a fight with the prosecutor and said terrible things? I always have to say, well, unfortunately, that never happened. And, you know, what happened was I said terrible things like their promises aren't worth the transcript pages they're written on. And if that's professional misconduct, then I worry about our abilities to do our jobs for our clients. Joe, you mentioned uh, the media and how uh, particularly um, as of late cases get drawn out in the media and seem to be decided in the media even before they hit a docket at times. Um, and I wonder, you know, you've had a lot of experience, particularly in Felderhoff, um, addressing the media. Do Have you learned any tools or tips that you'd pass on to other lawyers on how to address that? Yeah, I think. I think dealing with the media is now an essential part of doing our jobs as defense lawyers. And, you know, frankly, sometimes I deal with the media when I'm acting as plaintiff's counsel on a case. So I, I tell young lawyers there are really three rules they need to have. First of all, they need to establish a relationship with the media. You can't call them up out of the blue and expect they're going to take your call or listen to you. So you need to figure out who are the reporters in the areas that you're practicing and you need to try and build a relationship with them. Buy them a cup of coffee. If you can send them something interesting that they they might want to write about, then you do that. Secondly, you need to have credibility. I mean, there's nothing more damaging than a reporter thinking you're trying to blow smoke at them. And so... They'll respect you if you say, I can't talk about it, but God help you if you lie to them because you burn them, you'll never recover. And you'll never recover from their colleagues because, you know, at the end of the day, they all gossip the same way lawyers do. And if you get a bad rep with one reporter, you can count on it being a bad rep with others. And and then thirdly, you know, be prepared to answer hard questions. This is not a one-way conversation where they're just going to be scribes and write down what you want them to write. You've got to be willing to have a decent story run to tackle the things that they're worried about. Now, of course, you need your client's instructions. And I have a discussion with clients to find out whether they want me to talk to the media or not. And uh, even where a client will tell me they don't want me to talk to the media, they'll almost always let me talk on background or off the record um, because it's important if we're not going to be public, at least the story be accurate. 
But especially in this climate, Sean, where we're seeing lives being ruined simply by allegations coming forward from complainants, I think lawyers have an obligation to do a better job of dealing with the media. And, you know, to come back to something you said, I think the only way you're going to save careers is to get into a fight in the press early on to try and give your client a chance to recover. Yeah, they, there, there seems to be a real shift away from we won't comment on that and we have trust in the courts that they will sort it out. Um, but that seems to be evaporating very quickly. And what's of been particular concern to me as of late is even politicians themselves seem to be jumping on that and uh, providing a more uh, populist opinion on on where they would like to see cases go. And that's, uh, to me, been very corrosive and, and dangerous. And I think you're right. I think it forces an obligation on us as lawyers to get ahead of the story, which has all sorts of dangers, but you're really um, between a rock and a hard place on these things. Absolutely. And, you know, if we had some way of changing the mindset of, of most Canadians and going back to a time where there was a healthy skepticism about complainants and where there was a real belief in the presumption of innocence, then we wouldn't need to do that. But I don't have a magic wand, and I can't tell you how we can change the attitudes of the Canadian public. So at the moment, I think what you're really left with is fighting fire with fire. Okay, let's. Uh, cameras are off, courtrooms closed. What do you do um, as your soul food, so to speak? I know you have a vineyard, which is amazing. I, I want to know more about that. Sure. Well, I, I was a home winemaker. I started with my grandfather when I was five years old, making wine out of dandelion, which was just terrible. <laughs> um, and then in, in high school, I joined up with a group of teachers and others, and we bought grapes from California, and we made a, a wine that Ian Binney called Shadow Groya back in 1979. <laughs> and, uh, and so when the Lost Society told me that they were going to charge me with professional misconduct, uh, my wife said, you know, Joe, you're going to go crazy. You need to get a distraction. So we went down to Niagara thinking we'd buy a couple of acres and I would grow grapes and still be a home winemaker. But we found this wonderful 30 acres uh, that fell into our lap. It was a vineyard, although it needed a lot of work. And so I went from a project that was going to be a you know couple of tons of grapes on the side to now being 16-mile seller, and we produce 1,500 cases a year of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. That's amazing. And uh, I've learned a lot about the wine business. I realized a home winemaker, it's a bit like you know a, a self-rep in a criminal court. <laughs> you think you know something about it, but you really don't know anything at all. And it's a very tough business, but you know, we've, we've reconditioned the vineyard. We planted 10 acres of new vines. We built a winery and a barn and a house and I spend as much time down there as I can, but you know the reality of the wine business is if I didn't have a day job as a lawyer, the winery wouldn't be able to survive financially. So, so what does a great day look like to you, Joe? Well, well, even to this day and age, my favorite days are the days I go to court. Putting on my gown and arguing a case is still the thing I probably like best. Uh, but if I'm not 
actually in court, and I think a great day for me is is probably half a day practicing law and half a day trying to sell wine or be a winemaker or even a farmer um, because I, I have this second passion, but it still doesn't come close to the the satisfaction of practicing law and actually doing what I like to do the best. Do you think that's important to lawyers to have some sort of escape um, outside of the courtroom and the office? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, law can be far too stressful and and all-consuming. One of the things I worry about is that over the last 20 years, I've seen a very real movement away from lawyers as professionals to lawyers as businessmen. You know, Brian Dixon referred to it as the lawyer-statesman ideal, and he was worried about it. I just heard Bob Sharp give a talk about his new book on Dixon. And I certainly see a real tension in the practice of, you know, lawyers trying to make a living. There's not enough jobs. There are not enough articling positions. Hourly rates now on Bay Street are over $1,000 an hour, and who can afford them? Um, so, you know, I, I think because law has become so stressful and so less collegial, you need to have an outside interest, a way of getting away from it and a way of really trying to deal with the stress, most of which comes from the economics and not the practice. So what do you see as, um, what does the future hold for us as lawyers from your perspective in a positive, negative way? Yeah, I'm I'm quite worried about the profession as a whole. I do think we need to have a very dramatic change in the way we approach the practice of law. If I was ever elected king for a day, I would probably say that I'm going to reduce all salaries and all hourly rates by 50%. And I think that, in part, the problem of the practice has been we decided to chase our clients in the brokerage business and in other professions who seem to be making so much money and we were falling behind. And so firms got into this kind of vicious cycle. You know, we pay on Bay Street, we pay an articling student almost double what a first year high school teacher makes. And I ask myself, why do we do that? And I I understand that there's student debt and I understand the burdens that young people have, but also if they come out and they're making the hundred and ten or hundred and twenty thousand a year as a first year lawyer now, the expectations and the demands on them are crushing. And so it seems to me that the best parts of being a lawyer are the parts that come with professionalism. And we've moved away from that. And I think that explains why there's less collegiality, why the training isn't as good, why young lawyers don't get to go to court as much. So we've got to find a way of saying, you know what, if you want to make a ton of money, go into the cannabis business. And if you want to have a great, satisfying career, practice law and give up trying to compete on a, from a financial point of view with people who are always going to make twice or three times as much money as you are. Do you have any encouragement from what you see um, from younger lawyers around you or even efforts within the law society um, in trying to anticipate where the law is going and an adaptation in that regard? Well, I, I see a lot of millennials who are coming along wanting to have a completely different work-life balance. And at the moment, that's completely out of sync with the demands of 
downtown Toronto law practice. So one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to adjust to the demands of the big firm environment or big firms are going to have to adjust to accommodate them. That has a severe economic impact. And what it means is there has to be a significant adjustment in the expectations on salary and partner's income if we're going to accommodate young lawyers who want to work less and and do other things with their life. I don't know how that's going to turn out, uh, but until we make that adjustment, I think we're going to continue as we are now in a very real crisis where the practice is not adjusting to the economic realities we're facing. What is, uh, you know, giving advice to those millennials, what is one piece of advice you hear repeated all the time, but you've always thought is just categorically wrong and is bad advice to lead your career by? I think the worst thing is to say to a young person that the practice of law is not a harsh mistress, that that you can start right from the get-go and expect to have a kind of work-life balance that is simply unrealistic. I mean, what I learned as a young lawyer was, and, and I learned this again from Ian Binney, that he said, you know, look, from September to June when courts are in session, your life is devoted to the practice of law. That means lots of nights and lots of weekends. When you're in a trial, it's an 18-hour day. When you have to be in court the next day, you have to be prepared. And if that means you've got to miss the hockey game or whatever, then that's the reality. But then if you're not in court, then you get to take some serious time off. And he would go off to Grand Manan Island every summer for six or seven weeks. And, you know, bear in mind, this was before internet, before emails, before the voicemails where, you know, there's a 24-hour expectation that we're on call for our clients. Um, and so I, I think that young lawyers, students need to be told that being a lawyer is a bit like being a doctor. And it means crazy hours sometimes. And you make up for it, and you have to make up for it by taking other times off and getting away from the practice. Um, I have to, to tell my clients when they hire me that there will be lots of days where between 8 and 5, I'm not on emails, I'm not answering voicemails, I'm just unavailable because I'm in court, and the only thing I'm thinking about is that client's case. You know, I look at some of my colleagues, and they've got their Blackberries under the counsel table, and they're picking up emails, and I'm just appalled. I think a client deserves your undivided attention for the entirety of the time you're in, in court. And I say to them, you know, I'm going to ignore everybody else when I'm doing your case, but I'm going to ignore you when I'm doing somebody else's case. I don't know that most lawyers say that as, as bluntly as they need to say that. Um, and I sometimes, you know, I'll get back to the office and there'll be a voicemail wanting to hire me and I'll return it at 6.30 and the person will say, well, you didn't answer, so I went somewhere else. And I, I'll wish them the best of luck, but I'll say, you know, if, if the person I think is the right lawyer for the job doesn't call me back, I don't think it's because she's on the golf course. I think it's because she's defending somebody else. And frankly, you know, when I go to my doctor, I'd be appalled if she said, excuse me, I'm going to talk to somebody else while we're in the middle of this examination. Like, so, so you know, young lawyers need to, to be told more 
frankly than I think they are, that the practice of law is a wonderful way to spend your life. There's still no better job, I think, in the world. But you make sacrifices and you make adjustments and you have to work around the demands of law. And that means when your clients need you, everything else falls away. And when you get a chance, then you take time off to make up for the nights and weekends you've lost. Well, Joe, I feel like I could talk to you for the entire day, and I would love to, but I know um, you have a very busy schedule today. So I'll just ask you one last question uh, that I ask all my guests. If you could have a primetime commercial that you could run maybe 30 seconds on a Stanley Cup final game between the Leafs and the Canadians, what would it be about, aside from how great your wine is? (laughs) I think... Uh, and, and in fact, the Law Society is going to spend some money trying to do some communications. I'd like to see some feel-good commercials about lawyers and lawyering. I think that the profession has really suffered a severe loss of confidence, and there are lots of lots of good lawyers doing incredible work for clients who are very disadvantaged, and they're doing it without getting paid. And, you know, I'd like to see a feel-good lawyer about a feel-good lawyer commercial where we try and remind the public that there are lots of very, very talented people working very hard to keep their clients out of jail or to get their clients the the restitution they deserve. Um, and I think we forget about that, and I think the public forgets about it. So that that would be my hope for the Stanley Cup final. Well, one small step at a time. I'm sure this podcast will be listened to by many, many lawyers and hopefully lots of the public. So maybe we can inch closer towards that. Thank you so much, Joe Groya, for coming um, and talking to us today on our podcast. We really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Sean. I'm, I'm grateful for the invitation.